This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Gregor Campbell covers a 19th century Wild West shootout in Andy Bay. Anne Barraclough looks at the development of national parks in New Zealand, and we hear how a dispute over sly grogging in the goldfields led to a killing. North Otago teenagers Thomas Langham and Thomas Robson were jailed in 1864 after a short but industrious career in crime, which had the newspapers calling them the young imitators of Dick Turpin. They were in the Dunedin prison for two years before they managed to escape, hitting Warder Burt on the head and stealing firearms from the prison guardroom. The two boys were not at liberty for long and were engaged in a tragic shootout with police. Gregor Campbell reads excerpts about the affair from the Otago Daily Times of August the 27th, 1864. Information was brought to the North Dunedin station that the convicts had entered a hut belonging to Mr De Lacey near the shore in a cove round Blackjack's Point, had asked various questions, had showed their weapons and declared who they were, and had stated that they wanted a boat. Langham, indeed, said that they wanted to go to Dick White's and asked where his house was. White is a man who was recently in jail, having been convicted of robbing premises in Cumberland Street and in other parts of the city. Information was given to the convicts as to where White's house lay on the opposite or peninsula side of the bay, and the two managed to get there, having taken a boat, which belongs, as we hear, to Mr Mackay, a resident in the locality of the hut. When this news reached the police... Men were sent to the hut and also to White's house, but the latter party arrived just after Langham and Robson had departed. At White's, they demanded something to eat and some tea, and each fed himself with his left hand, Langham keeping the stolen rifle over his right arm, and Robson holding a revolver in his right hand. Langham also demanded and got from White a pair of trousers, which he put on, leaving those belonging to the jail which were much stained with blood. Langham said that the blood came from that bloody Bert, the warder, and both the men talked so as to show that they believed that the blows struck on Bert's head with the mallet had killed him. When Langham and Robson determined to move, after leaving White's, they worked away through the bush until they got to that at the back of the Vauxhall Gardens, and they passed the gardens so closely according to Robson, that they could hear the practising in the shooting gallery. Soon after this, they were seen. In fact, they came upon a resident in the district, Mr Storey, who was out with a friend, and stuck them up. The desperados presented their weapons at Mr Storey and his friend, demanding whether the police were out in the neighbourhood, what was said in the paper as to the escape from the jail, and whether Mr Storey or his friend had an evening paper about him. This was about half past five o'clock, and at 20 minutes after six, information was given to Sergeant Major Moore at the Andersons Bay Hotel of what had happened and of the certainty that the two criminals were still holding in a bit of bush which was indicated. About 20 minutes before seven, Baxter saw two men who had apparently come from the bush, 
walking across the paddock opposite to his post. They came on and crossed the fence into the paddock in which he was, and then made a slant as if to cross another fence running up the road behind the Andersons Bay Hotel to the district road. This fence was 200 or 300 yards from Baxter, and he now rose and straggled down towards the man. He was, of course, not in his uniform, as if he was simply looking about him. When he was within 100 yards of them, the men seated themselves on a slight hillock and did not move until he was within 8 or 10 yards. Then he recognised the caps worn by the men as being part of the jail dress, and the ruffians recognised or suspected him, for there was a muttered, Fell the bastard, or shoot the bastard. One of them, who was wearing a coat, Robson, presented a revolver, and the other brought a rifle into position. Baxter retreated a few yards, then turned and fronted the men, intending to challenge them to surrender. But as soon as he turned, he was shot at, and a bullet whizzed close to his left ear, but did not hit him. This shot is believed to have come from Langham's rifle. Baxter drew his revolver and fired, but without any visible effect, for the two separated slightly and began a smart walk. Baxter called to them, Stand! I'm a police officer! But as they still moved off, he repeated his challenge as loudly as possible. He also cooed to warn his comrades. The men commenced to run, now making in the direction of the district road, and Baxter fired a second shot, but still without effect, so far as he could discover. Baxter followed in the chase, calling loudly for assistance, and he even shouted, Murder! thinking to attract some men whom he had observed and who, as he knew, must be still within hearing. He fired a third shot, and this struck Robson, who fell forward on his hands and knees. Langham instantly turned, knelt, took steady aim, and fired, and the ball hit Baxter on the left side of the head, behind and almost in line with the ear. Baxter's felt hat was left with a long, jagged hole in it, but no doubt the substance of the felt and the band turned the ball slightly, and the wound on Baxter's head, though severe, is fortunately not at all dangerous. Subsequently, Constable Bevan and Sergeant Major Moore came to Baxter's assistance, and after a while he went to a cottage on the brickfield and had his wound washed before coming on to town. Constables Bevan and Fair and Warden McNamara were those to whom, principally, Moore had been able to give instructions on leaving for town. Those officers, after again looking over the road and along the fence, got in well upon the flat land. In making the search along the fence, a man believed to be Robson was seen beyond the ditch and was several times challenged to surrender. No reply was given and a shot fired in the direction. The officers kept divided so as to cover more than 100 yards of ground, and after this had been repeated twice or thrice, McNamara pointed to where he thought he saw Langham, who had on no coat and was therefore more likely to be seen against the dark soil. A challenge was given. It was shouted, Langham, we see you. Give up your arms. And Langham, it's no use. You had better surrender. A shot was fired from the spot, and one was fired by the officers. Again there was a challenge, and there being no reply, another shot was fired. Subsequently, McNamara crept up to the spot and found Langham apparently dead, with his rifle beside him. 
Again, the officers commenced to beat over the ground, and at last, Fair saw what he believed to be the head of Robson, just above the line of the ditch. Fair presented his revolver and shouted, Robson, you had better surrender. For a minute, there was no answer, but when Fair called, If you don't come out directly and surrender, I'll fire. Robson answered that he would do so. He was told to drop his revolver, which he did, and then Fair rushed on him, pulled him out of the ditch, and found that he was wounded in the right leg. A second revolver was taken from Robson, who had been lying concealed some 20 yards along the fence from the spot where Langham fell. All this happened before Moore returned from town, and now nothing remained but to obtain the means of bringing the hapless dead criminal and the as-hapless wounded one into town. Moore's visit to town and the arrival of Baxter had led to rumours as to what had been occurring at Anderson's Bay, so that when the express wagon with the corpse and the wounded Robson arrived at the constabulary depot, there was speedily gathered a large and wildly speculative crowd. Langham's body still remains at the depot. Robson's wound, a severe one in the fleshy part of the right leg, accompanied by fracture of the bone, was attended to by Dr Curry at the depot and an attempt was made to extract the ball, which it subsequently appeared had not lodged. Robson was then sent to the hospital. It is believed the ball entered about three inches above the ankle and came out at the centre of the calf, the hit having, as before stated, been given while Robson was running. It is not true that the leg was amputated yesterday. We believe it was once believed by doctors Hume and Burns that such a course would be necessary, but Robson was then very weak. He has since rallied, and he was progressing favourably last evening. Langham was shot in the thorax, and his death must have been very speedy. The rifle which Langham carried was found to be loaded in three of its five chambers. Both the pistols which Robson had were fully loaded and capped when they were recovered. It is believed that he did not fire at all during the conflict. However they were obtained, there is reason for concluding that the criminals had cartridges with them. White says that he saw 12 or 15 in the possession of Langham on Friday night. It will be remembered that the rifle and pistols were fully loaded and capped when stolen from the jail. An inquest on the body of Langham will be held today, but the hour was not fixed last evening. Constable Baxter is doing most satisfactorily under his wound, and so is Warder Burt. Thomas Langham is now buried in an unmarked grave in Dunedin's Southern Cemetery. Thomas Robson had three years added to his original sentence. On his release, it would seem that he faded into obscurity. Constable Baxter retired at the rank of sergeant and then went into the hotel-keeping business with, presumably, many stories to tell. I am the non-desperado Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. COVID-19 has severely curtailed overseas travel opportunities. Many New Zealanders have been enjoying our splendid national parks instead. Anne Barraclough has been looking at how they were set up, with a special focus on the Mount Aspiring National Park. We in Dunedin are particularly lucky as we have the magnificent Mount Aspiring National Park on our doorstep and the Fiordland National Park not much further away. My first holidays at Otago as a young student included a tramping and science faculty trip up the Matukituki Valley, staying in the Alpine Club hut and the following holidays, 
a tramping club trip based at Arthur's Pass. My outdoors interests morphed into skiing for the following two decades until I re-met and married one of those present at that first tramping club trip up the Matukituki, my late husband Roger, who loved Mount Aspiring, had climbed it several times, and in our courting days, as well as tramping trips into the park, would take us in a small aero club plane, flying round the beautiful peak and over to Milford for a cup of tea or lunch. Over the years, we've visited many national parks throughout the world, but firmly believe our New Zealand national parks are on a par with any of them. In 1987, we attended the centennial celebrations of the Tongariro National Park at the Chateau. This was an impressive event and significant in that Tongariro was our first national park and the first in the world to be gifted by an indigenous people. The first national park in the world is Yellowstone, an area of canyons, waterfalls and gurgling hot springs established in 1872. Yellowstone was reserved, quote, from settlement, occupancy or sale under the laws of the United States and set apart as a public park or pleasuring ground for the pleasure and enjoyment of the people. With the completion of the Northern Pacific Railroad in 1883, publicity encouraged tourists who came in large numbers and created so much damage to the natural geology, flora and fauna that an army company was deployed to manage the park, handing over to the newly created National Parks Service in 1918. Previously in history, enlightened rulers in Asia had given protection to fish, animals and forests, and in the Middle Ages, European sovereigns had forbidden lumbering and hunting in certain forest domains. Aztec rulers and African monarchs had made similar laws, but Yellowstone was the first reservation set aside for the enjoyment of the people. Two years after its establishment, former Premier William Fox had written to Julius Vogel suggesting that New Zealand follow suit with the Lake Rotomohana area including the pink and white terraces, already a tourist attraction, alas, to disappear in the eruption of 1886. Conservation is clearly a feature of parks. Surveyor Julius von Haast observed at Mount Cook the prevalence of rats, which he was knocking over with his stick as he sat by his campfire. Beaches crawled with them, and forest bird life was disappearing, killed by introduced predators. The Norway rat introduced by Cook had exterminated the Maori rat. Wild dogs, cats and pigs were overrunning the bush and forests were being felled willy-nilly, especially in the South Island. The settlers' acclimatisation societies by the 1860s were bringing in field animals, game birds, waterfowl and plants from all over the world. The following decade saw the arrival of hares, hedgehogs, brown trout and deer. Between 1830 and 1868, a quarter of New Zealand's forests, one and a half million hectares, had been lost and the rate of destruction was increasing. Vogel, in 1874, passed the New Zealand Forests Act, establishing state forests, saying... New Zealand in its old wild state might be very much more valuable clothed with forest 
than New Zealand denuded of forest. In 1875, a reserve of an eight-kilometre radius round Mount Egmont, now Taranaki, was established. Today, New Zealand has 13 national parks, all administered by the Department of Conservation. Gazetted in 1964, the 10th National Park, with an area of 492,300 acres, the Mount Aspiring National Park, is the result of more than 30 years' work and planning, much by F.C. Dawson, killed in action in 1943. A public meeting convened in 1964 by mountain clubs wholeheartedly supported the proposal for a park, as access by road, air and jet boat was rapidly improving. A nine-person board was set up, comprising people from Dunedin, Invercargill, West Coast, Glenorchy and the Matukituki Valley. My husband was later on this board for many years, several as chairperson, so we had many trips to the park over the years. The park has now grown to 3,563 square kilometres today. Named by surveyor John Turnbull Thompson in 1867, the mountain is still called Mount Aspiring, although its Maori name is Tititea, Glistening Peak. Mount Aspiring was first climbed in November 1909 by Bernard Head, Jack Clark and Alec Graham. For most of us family types, a summer stay in Glenorchy and day trips up the Rootburn, Greenstone, to Sylvan Lake, the Dart and Reese are affordable, accessible and easy to manage. For those who don't mind a bit of a walk, pack carrying and the odd river crossing, there is always the Matukituki Valley, with the aspiring hut in the west branch or take tents up the east branch. My best night out was one time when we found the aspiring hut was unexpectedly fully booked so a group of us spread our sleeping bags outside on a sheet of tarpaulin and fell asleep watching the stars and satellites overhead and were awakened next morning with kias flying over us with their friendly shrieks of Kia! The aspiring hut was started in earnest by the Otago section of the Alpine Club after the war when surplus army trucks were available to drag building materials up the valley. Sterling work arranged by a keen committee, including Bob Craigie, Ernie Smith and Angus Black, and supported as always by aspiring run holders, Jerry and Phyllis Aspinall, commenced in the winter of 1946, the hut being opened in Easter 1949. Ongoing work parties upgraded and expanded the kitchen and toilets and generally improved the hut to what it is today. If you haven't visited our nearest national park, now is the time, or better still in summer, when the beautiful alpine flowers are flowering. I am Anne Barrowclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. In the 19th century, work camps were rough and ready places, and one in Otago was the scene of a revenge beating that got out of hand. Gregor Campbell with that story. In the 1880s, work was well underway on the construction of the Central Otago Railway Line. As sections were worked on, temporary camps were set up for and by the workers. An illegal but inevitable feature of a railway camp was the grog shanty, and it was on the Ninthorn Railway Camp, 
on the other side of the Tyree River from the later gold town of the same name, that one William Meldrum, a large, powerful man, was beaten by three others and died from his injuries. The three assailants were imprisoned for manslaughter, and there the story might end, except for a remarkable column published two years later by the Wairoapa Daily Times. It described their sanctum being invaded by one Mary Burke, a boarding housekeeper who had this to say about the death of William Meldrum at the Nenthorn camp. Oh, that. I got clear of that altogether. There was nothing at all against me. I was carrying on a successful boarding house on the works and getting the biggest part of the trade without doing any sly grog selling at all. The others were selling grog wholesale, but I believed in doing only what was right and honest because I'd left my children in Dunedin at school and my old man was working on the job, getting his 10 shillings a day and there was no occasion for me to be carrying on that trade. At last, this Meldrum informed the boss that I was selling grog. The boss told Burke, who immediately said that he would stop on a job where he or his wife was suspected of sly grog selling. So he asked for his time and left, intending to go to Wamaru, telling me to sell out my business and follow him. Well, I agreed to sell out to Meldrum, whose wife and a gay girl were carrying on hijinks on the works and were selling grog very openly. After my old man had been gone about a fortnight, Meldrum was to take possession on the Saturday and pay me £6 deposit and £14 before he left the place. As he had served Burke such a dirty trick, I was determined to have revenge before I left. So I gave one of the boys some money to make him drunk, so that the boss could see what kind of man he had to deal with. This job was done to perfection, and Meldrum was drunk as he could stand on Friday and Saturday, And as some of the boys had pulled down a framework of a shanty he was erecting, he got mad and said I had put them onto it and threatened to dash my brains out with a long-handled shovel he was carrying. Seeing he was dangerously drunk, I rushed inside my place, which had nothing but sacks nailed up where the windows ought to be. He came after me with the shovel, and although I held the door on the inside, he forced it open and, picking up an axe handle, struck me a blow on the head, which knocked me senseless. In proof of this, Mrs Burke removed her head covering and, parting her hair, which was fast turning grey, disclosed to our view an old scar on the top of the crown. Resuming the interesting narrative, the lady described how Meldrum had kicked her in her right side as she lay senseless, the effect of which she felt to the present day and he was prevented from striking her the second time by an Englishman who rushed in and caught him by the arm. Recovering from the blow, I hovered between life and death for a fortnight, and although I wished to give him in charge for the murderous assault, I said, No, leave him to God. He will punish him, and as sure as I live, he will get twenty to one more punishment than I shall. I had a deal of bother to get my money from them, and some of the men paid them what they owed me, but I never got it. Before I left, I gave one of the boys something to give Meldrum a good hiding, because I longed for revenge. And as the boy owed him a grudge, I was sure he would pay him with good interest. But I little I thought that he would be in his grave within seven weeks after he struck me. That's all I know about the affair, and that's all I said at the inquest. Mary Burke 
did not long survive her interview with the Wairarapa Daily Times. She died the New Zealand death two years later, drowning in a branch of the Kumiu River at Woodhill, west of Auckland. The bottle of brandy she had consumed on the riverbank would have prevented any discomfort. I am the perfectly sober Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Mrs Mary Burke's testimony was read by Emma Lyons. And now a shorter piece relating to all those logs you see being hauled to Port Chalmers each day. The origin and original name for the trees from which those logs came may surprise you. On New Year's Day in the year 2000, I hitched home out of Wanaka after an engagement the previous night. Anyone who's spent New Year's Eve in Wanaka will understand my desire to leave sooner rather than later. I was picked up by a Californian driver, and I pointed out a wilding pine growing on the roadside, saying that it's an endangered tree in his home state, but grown by the literal million in New Zealand. What's it called, he asked. A pinus radiata, I replied. Yes, he went on, but what's its name? I had no idea. Later research in those pre-internet days revealed the name Monterey Pine, and yes, as a coastal tree, it was endangered at home by coastal housing development. But what was it doing here, growing in long straight rows, hillside after hillside, in New Zealand? The pine was first introduced to New Zealand in the late 19th century for use as shelter belts on windy plains and woodlots for timber. It was a fast favourite due to its fast growth rate, although a disadvantage of its Californian ancestry came in its inability to bear any great weight of snow on its upper branches. Use as a building timber was later in coming, many authorities being doubtful about it. Pressure treatment with preservatives was developed in 1943, and a wartime shortage of wood forced its adoption by the building industry. Since then, Monterey pine in New Zealand has been developed for better tolerance of diverse soil types, resistance to pests and disease, and stronger wood for building. An ancient neighbour of the Monterey pine is the Monterey cypress, also known in New Zealand by its botanical name, the Hesperocyparis macrocarpa, or just the macrocarpa. It is also an endangered species on its home territory, existing only in two protected stands of trees on the Californian coast. Here in New Zealand, it is a feature of coastal farmland, a small stand of large trees being a good indicator of an old farmhouse site. The trees were first planted as hedges and shelter belts in the 1860s and were found to be more resistant to windy and salty conditions than radiata pine. I am the much less ancient but still able to be revered Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. 
Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.